This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Monday show. I always like being back on Monday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio show dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind in these troubled times that we live in, I will do the best that I can to answer your questions. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started. We apologize. I apologize for um, not being on live on Friday. We were here. We were ready to go, but we had technical issues that apparently uh, were issues with our cable provider here. So our studio here at the church wasn't working at all. I, I hate not being here uh, live when I'm here. We were ready to go, and I apologize. Uh, we are back online, and hopefully the uh, the equipment will keep working now that we've had some fixes done to it. I also want to say thank you to Princess. Princess, I know you're a regular listener, and uh, I, j- I got your nice email, your, your, your note, and I appreciate it more than you know. Thank you very, very much. The other thing I want to remind you of tonight is that we've got our men's and women's studies tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Pastor Ken uh, is teaching in Acts chapter 7 for the men. That can be seen via live stream. Uh, And also, of course, our Sweet Summer Devotion series is tonight at 7 o'clock. And uh, our speaker tonight will be Raina Wilson. Now, Raina is somebody that this radio audience has been really invested in because over the years... We have asked for so much prayer, and uh, that she is still here with us is a miracle. But the fact that she's well, that she's strong, uh, and I can promise you that what she's going to share tonight will be worth your while. You can watch it at uh, 7 o'clock here live at the church. We are open. Uh, We're keeping uh, social distancing, and masks are required. But uh, it's always better if you can be here in person. Uh, but if you can't, calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. Um, uh, but believe me, Raina will bless you abundantly. Um, uh, having gone through her uh, over these past several years with the things that she's gone through, the many times she was told to go home and die, and uh, to see what the Lord has done has been an, an absolute revelation of the goodness of God. So all of that is tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, let's get to some questions while we wait for your phone calls. Uh, I just had a question that came in. Evidently, uh, California has just announced that they are scaling back everything to the uh, first quarantine restrictions uh, guidelines, and that includes churches. So um, the question that was sent in was, what do you think about the California um requirements for churches to close now uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, My answer to that is, I'm glad I'm not in California, but this is really a a difficult situation. Um, 
I have been distressed. I've talked about this a little bit on this program. I've been distressed at how easily Christians are willing to walk away from church. And I've got friends who are pastors in California, and some of them were very, very vocal about never, ever closing the church down again. They were, they were um, uh, sad that they had made the decision to, to, to listen, to obey the governor's mandates the first time. And once upon reopening, they said, we're never going to do it again. So uh, to the caller who asked this question, uh, this is a really, really tough thing. Um, I honestly don't believe that the government ever has the power, the authority to close down churches. I still believe in our rights as adults, as American citizens, to choose uh, where we worship, when we worship, and how we worship. I know there is a big forward press on singing in churches and worshiping, um, and it seems to be spearheaded by a a bunch of, um, let's just say, anti-Christian newspapers and um, online sites. So I I don't know what they're going to do. I'll I'll talk to them next week or later this week and see uh, if they're still committed to going on um, live uh, as they have claimed that they would. But this is a really difficult thing, and I just want to caution Christians. Don't let your freedoms to worship God be infringed upon. Don't let that happen, period. And if we do, I think we're in for um, some really difficult times. I, I don't think we're going to get some of these freedoms back. You know, I was telling Paula yesterday when I got home, Paula wasn't able to go. Paula is still positive for her uh, her test, so she's not received a negative clearance yet. Uh, so I was here without her yesterday, and when I went home, I said, you know, Paul, I'm not sure church is ever going to look the same again. And, um, you know, in some ways, maybe that's good, but I think, by and large, it's really going to be a difficult thing. And uh, we have to fight for what we call church. We can't let it be taken away from us, because if we let fear keep us home, well, I think that's sort of the beginning of the end. And I don't mean of churches as institutions, but I mean as we protect our own walks with the Lord. Isolation is not good. It's not healthy spiritually. Those of us who really believe the value of church, really believe in the assembling together of the saints, we need to hold on. We need to get ready. I, I can just see a bunch of things that are going to continue happening. So uh, that was the question I got right at the beginning. Uh, we have a question. I think it was from Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Mike that came in on Wednesday. And Mike, I'm sorry, I was going to answer this question on Friday. And then we had the um, technical difficulty. So this is from last Wednesday. Mike called in and he said, I find that the books of the Apocrypha like Second Clement are very helpful to me. And he wanted my comment. And I only was able to touch on it briefly at the end of the program on Wednesday. Um, Mike, I, I don't think, helpful is not the word I would use to describe the books of the Apocrypha. Uh, this, they're, they're interesting. That's, that's a good word. They're interesting. I think they have some historical value. But in terms of being helpful, beyond the historical value, I just don't believe, Mike, that they have any value. We need to remember these are not books that are written by God, the Spirit of God. These are books that were written by men, and and even if they were well-meaning men, um, it's completely different. I'll give you an example. We have um, we know from reading First and Second Corinthians that Paul wrote three letters to the church at Corinth. We only have two of them. Somebody would say, well, why do we only have two of them? Well, it's simple, because God wrote two of them, Paul wrote one of them, and Paul's letter, although I'm sure it would be helpful if we had it, it wasn't written by God, it wasn't an Aaron, it wasn't perfect. And the main problem with the apocryphal books, remember, they've never been a part of the Jewish canon of Scripture. It's not like they were in there and Christians took them out. They were never, ever a part of the Jewish scriptures. And the problem with them is they often contradict or stand even in opposition to what we know is the already revealed scripture of God. 
So, Mike, I'd be really, really careful because if we if we let them influence us in terms of content, then I think we're in a dangerous place. Now, if you are, and it appears that you are one who studies rightly dividing the Word of God, uh, you can kind of take what helps and what doesn't help. But just remember, just because they're in Catholic Bibles, we can't give them any credibility in terms of accuracy or truth. Again, historical value maybe, but I think anything beyond that, Mike, is really, really difficult. So, Mike, I apologize for not getting to that question on Friday, but we were sort of off the air. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one came from Kirby. Uh, I've heard you say that the word blessed in the New Testament means happy. Does the word blessed in the Old Testament mean the same in the New Testament, like Psalm 146, verse 5? Um, the answer to your question, the short answer is yes, it does. Um, let me read Psalm 146. Blessed is he uh, whose help is, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And the King James, uh, the New King James, actually uses the word happy rather than blessed. It's the Hebrew word esher, and it does mean happy. So the idea there is is it's not um, a supernatural blessing. It's the idea of peace and contentment when you're walking with the Lord. And and whether it's the, the, the Hebrew language or the Greek language in the New Testament, uh, the word communicates the same concept. Happy are you. Content, peaceful, joyful are you. So that's what it means. When Jesus, uh, on the Beatitudes, he talks about um, things that are blessed. Um, blessed, happy is the poor in spirit. Well, we won't, wouldn't necessarily associate being poor in spirit with happiness. But the idea is that once we know who we are in light of who he is, we realize that we have nothing to contribute. Well, that's when we can sort of settle back in his arms and be happy. So, Kirby, I hope that answers your question. The idea is the same Old Testament or new. Here is a question from Mary. Uh, hey, Pastor Ron, so I got a card from a Baptist church on my door yesterday. And in the side, it had three things listed. First, independent. Second, soul winning. And third, King James Version only. Uh, I was told that churches put that there to show where they stand. Well, I called the church to inquire about the King James only believe. The man says that they believe it's the right one and other versions have been corrupted by the devil and I should watch a documentary on it. I told the man I didn't believe that the devil had corrupted any of the other versions. He tells me the NIV is the worst and the most popular version to read because it has many scriptures taken out of it. I told him, well, I'm a believer and I'm well taught. So curious, why do people believe in King James only and how did that get started? Um, I, I hope I have the name right, Mary, but the King James only movement really got legs uh, with a man named Carol Ripplinger. He wrote a book um, called King James Only, and um, um, and he laid out this complicated conspiracy about how all of the other versions had been corrupted. Now, he, he obviously, as the same is true with this pastor or the person that you called at this church, um, they don't understand how we got our Bibles. They don't understand the manuscripts that are being translated. The NIV, and, I, and as you know, Mary, I use the 1984 NIV. Um, I, it doesn't take anything out. I mean, all of the verses that they say the NIV is taking out, removing, uh, if you look down at the bottom of the page, there's always a footnote and says some manuscripts have, and they will include exactly that verse. If they were trying to hide it, if this were a conspiracy, certainly there wouldn't be any uh, issues with, with they wouldn't want to put it down there where it could be disclosed. Um, here's the thing that's going on. Um, the King James and the New King James versions are translations of the majority manuscripts or the Texas Receptus manuscripts. Um, and uh, those manuscripts have those passages, so they include them, including the disputed passages, the end of Mark and in, in John, I think it's chapter 8. 
Um, there, there are some disputed manuscripts. Nobody knows for sure whether they were original or whether they were added later. But the Texas Receptus or the majority of manuscripts have them, so they include them in there. The Alexandrian manuscript, which the newer translations um, um, translate, um, uh, are considered by some to be better. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but they consider them better because the Alexandrian manuscripts are older. General rule of thumb, the older the manuscript, the more original it is. And those manuscripts simply don't have them. But again, they're not trying to hide them. And when people say the um, um, King James is the only version, um, they're, they're, they're missing the whole way we came about these translations. Now, um, your next question was, what made you pick to teach out of the NIV? Um, Mary, for me, it was simple. Whenever you go to somebody who's teaching out of the New King James or the King James, when they'll read the verse, they'll explain, well, this is what it really says. And basically, they're going to quote the, the 1984 version of the NIV. Language is, is not static. Language is dynamic. It keeps changing. And we don't talk the same way now that we did in 1611 when the King James was written. Uh, and so we just have to make it a little bit more contemporary so it's more conversationally friendly to... Um, 1,600 years of evolution in our language. So uh, I just, for the sake of clarity, the, the, the 1984, and I want to be clear that I'm not talking about the 2011 NIV, the 1984 NIV is, in my view, the most accurate New Testament translation we have. There's some who say no, the NASB. I, I don't. I don't think so. I think that the 1984 NIV is. I don't agree that it is the best translation of many of the Old Testament books. That's why we have Bible study computer programs that have different versions. You can flip back and forth between them really simply and easily. And I think everybody who's serious about studying Mary ought to study from more than one manuscript. Uh, in our home, we have both an NLT, New Living Translation, and a 1984 NIV. So Paul and I don't even use the same one. And I told her a long time ago, it's a good idea. She had a New King James for a long, long time, and that was great. But to keep switching it up, simply because it gives us more opportunities to dig in. So um, that's the NIV, or, or the, the King James only controversy. And um, people who take that position don't understand that if they follow the logical conclusion of that position, that that would mean there was no Bible available in the world, no authorized by God Bible before 1611. There's no authorized Bible in any foreign language. And of course, we know that can't be true. Thanks for the question, Mary. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Seguin and talk to our friend Reuben on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. Thanks for holding. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? Reuben, thank you. I'm doing very well. Um, I called uh, for prayer, but also called, I need your help to understand. I've been sick for three weeks, as you know, with coronavirus. Mm -hmm. My dad is still in ICU in Stone Oak, okay. and my brother, like I said, passed away on July the 4th of, of this coronavirus. Now, you know, I was brought up, I told you, I was brought up in a Pentecostal background, and I'm, I've been asking God to heal me. I've been, you know, pleading the blood of Jesus and reading the Bible, and, and what I read is... And for what I understand is the blood of Jesus. Am I correct to know that the blood of Jesus is supposed to heal me? And he shed his blood for my diseases and for my sickness and for all of my sins. And I'm not asking why. I'm just, I just, I want God to show me what is it that he wants me to learn from this because I'm scared I don't want to die 
and and I'm sick, and my doctor tells me if I get worse to go to the hospital, and I've been like this for three weeks. Can you help me understand how do I pray? What do I pray? And, and the blood of Jesus, when he died on the cross, wasn't it for my sins and wasn't it for my sicknesses? Yeah. Ruben, I can I can answer that. So please pay attention. I I I can hear your pain, and I I can feel your fear. And I think that's really important for all of us to understand. Um, when we're afraid, then our faith is real. Our faith really gets tested. Peter says that 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 trials like this are more precious than gold. And the reason he says that is because um, these trials demonstrate that our faith is real that our faith is real. Now, we have talked about this before, and I realize uh, the, the lies that the enemy is saying to you. I understand you watch your brother die. We have been praying for your father, and I'm glad that he's still with us and praying that he's doing better. Um, but there's no place that our physical sicknesses are covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. By his stripes we are healed. That's a healing from the one disease that's going to kill all of us, the disease of sin. Matthew talks about this, and Peter also talks about this. This has nothing to do with our physical illnesses. It's so important that you understand that because in your Pentecostal church background, you've been wrongly taught. And so you you've got to, you can claim the promises of God by faith, but they've got to be real promises. Even the Apostle Paul, when he pleaded with the Lord to take his thorn in the flesh, we don't know what it was, we know it was a physical ailment. He pleaded with him to take it away, and, and, and God said no. He told him, my grace is sufficient for you. So it's really important you understand that. Now, as to how you should pray in a time like this. I think it's perfectly fine to say, Lord, what can I learn here? I mean, all of our trials, they're, they're corrective, they're directive, uh, they help get us back on course, they humble us. Um, but it's appropriate to ask why, or, or, or what do you want me to learn here, Lord? But you can't claim a promise that God doesn't made. So the atonement of Jesus Christ has no promise at all for our physical illnesses. So the way to pray is, Jesus, I need your grace. He told Paul, your grace was sufficient. I need your grace. I need your peace. Cry out and say, God, I'm afraid. I don't want to die yet. But then like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, after pleading with the Father, if God didn't even answer his own son's prayer, when Jesus asked three times, if this cup can pass for me, three times the Lord said no. All three times Jesus prayed, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. So Reuben, that's the way we respond to this. Lord, I'm sick. Your grace is sufficient. I know it is because your word makes that promise. I know you say in your word over and over and over, do not be afraid, but I'm afraid. And then let God bless you with a peace that passes understanding. One other comment here, Reuben, that I think is very important, and this is not just for you, but I get this question a lot about pleading the blood. We don't have to plead the blood. It's already been given to us. It's already been appropriated to us. So why would you plead for something that you already have? That, to me is a prayer that lacks faith. And so you don't have to beg God. You just say, Jesus, I need your help to get through this moment. And it's in these trials, Reuben, it's in these trials when you're going to find that the Lord is never closer to you. And if we'll understand that, then we'll find that in his presence is a fullness of joy, even through difficult times. But we got to be in his presence, and the only way that we can really be in his presence is to come to him on his terms. So what we say is, Lord, Jesus died for my sins. I'm asking you, Lord, 
to touch and heal my body. And he still heals. It's not something that we're owed or even promised, but he still does it sometimes. Can I say one other thing, Reuben? If you've got a computer working at home, watch tonight's Sweet Summer Devotions. It's for ladies, but listen to what Raina has to say. CalvarySA.com at 7 o'clock. There'll be a little time of worship, and then she'll come up. And I promise you that the Lord will encourage you and strengthen you. She has been through impossible situations, and God has been glorified. Thanks, Reuben. We're praying for you and for your dad. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Let's go to line one and talk with Alan on San Antonio. He said he wants to pray for Reuben on the air. Alan, thanks for calling. You are on the air now. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Doing really well. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, too. Uh, yes, I've been listening to Reuben for months. I've been listening to him to call, and you know, he's been suffering so much with illnesses, and yeah. and I've and I've heard him cry, and really, I a lot of compassion on him, and um, it's been a long road for him, and I understand I understand he said he's afraid to die, and especially when you're all alone like that. And so, yeah. really, I just wanted to, to pray for him, if that's okay with you. And uh, now I'd listen to a lot of your uh, of, of your um, sermons on the radio, and I'd listen to a lot of them. And uh, I learned a lot because uh, when you have said, you know, when people say, oh, I take authority over in the name of Jesus, yeah. and I take authority, and that's not correct. And so... I was praying, and um, the Holy Spirit of Truth uh, helped me with a, with a prayer that I want to pray for Reuben, and okay. that's okay with you. And feel feel free. Go ahead. We'll, we'll join you. Hey, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord, I pray. I, I pray. I pray for the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth to take authority over the spirit of infirmity, which <clears throat> dwells on the body of Reuben from Seguin. I pray... Uh, for you to take authority over the spirit of infirmity in his father and his whole family and his body. I pray you purify his blood. I pray you make clean his blood with, with your blood. I pray that your blood will purify his blood. I pray that you restore him, recover his body, recover the body of his father, recover the bodies of all his family members, all his loved ones. And I pray that, that you give him the health which he prays for, which he has faith in his heart for. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth for all these things to come to pass. Thank you for this time. I pray in Jesus' name forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Alan. God bless you. It's That's very kind. And to, to begin with, the Lord's model for prayer is a perfect illustration about how we should pray. Thank you. I appreciate Alan. appreciate your heart. Here's a question from Marcelo from San Antonio. He says, can you describe the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? Are they simply opposites? Which of these is more like what is taught at Calvary and why? Um, Marcelo, both, um, they're opposite extremes. So when you say, are they simply opposites? They are. But both of them are opposite extremes. Um, Calvinism 
has some truth. Arminianism has some truth. But when you take extremes, you often miss that truth. And you're going to find the truth is in the balance, right in, right in the middle. Um, uh, Calvinism, of course, is a, a reformed doctrinal position that says uh, God chooses uh, arbitrarily who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. And if God chooses you, then you have no uh, ability to resist it. If God doesn't choose you, then you can't be saved. And that's simply not true. Now, Calvinism believes in the perseverance of the saints. Calvinism believes in a lot of things that we here at Calvary Chapel would believe. But the extremes are where the, the, the difficulty lies. Arminianism is just the other side of that. You know, you can be saved, lose your salvation, you can give your salvation back, then you can get saved again. You can keep doing this over and over, and basically whatever you want at that particular time, you can do it. And that's also not true. Now, it's true, again, there's a grain of truth here as well, it's true that we can choose to serve God but it's not true that if we're really saved that we can lose our salvation. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, it's really clear. Jesus talks about the security he wants to have. First John, the whole book is written that we might know that we have eternal life. So the differences are simple. Um, when you find extremes, there are going to be a lot of differences. Now, Um, Neither of those is like what we teach here at Calvary Chapel uh, because we teach the balance. I have no problem saying to somebody that if you're in Christ, if you're really in Christ, then your place in heaven is secure at the same time telling that person if they live a life of willful sin that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no tension between those extremes for me. It's just a matter of if we're really saved, then we're always saved. If we never were saved, even if we looked like we were saved, Judas looked more like an authentic disciple than perhaps any of the others. And yet, he betrayed the Lord. So I think, Marcelo, um, we teach here the balance, and the balance is simple. If you live a heathen life, it's because you are a heathen, and you're not saved. Now, if you occasionally sin... Well, we understand everybody does that. But but if you sin willfully, and that willful sin characterizes your life, then we would look at you and say, well, what makes you think you're a Christian? Is it because you got baptized? That doesn't save. It's because you answered an altar call? That doesn't get you saved. What saves is the person of Jesus Christ. And it's really critical that we understand that when you meet Jesus, you change and the problem, Marcelo, is that Calvinism on one extreme and Arminianism on the other extreme, they miss that important perspective of relationship. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Marcelo. Here's one from Alan from Universal City. Why do so many scholars differ on historical timelines? For example, I've heard that Jesus died anywhere from 30 A.D. to 36 A.D. What are the resources available to find these answers, and how does one determine uh, which one to trust? Uh, Alan, the the, the dates um, are... I'm going to question later, if I get to it today, about the dating of the Gospels. Uh, There's a lot of differences... Of the, of the historical accuracy, the timelines. Uh, I can tell you that Jesus died in 32 AD. April, our, corresponding to our calendar, remember, we've got to remember that Jewish years had 360-day years, um, not 365 like we do now. Uh, and you can follow biblically. Now, the, the, the scholarship that I accept, it's, it's widely accepted, is the, the scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson. You can Google him, look him up. He's got the, the coming prints. He's got, he's got wonderful, wonderful resources out there that are available. I know that April 6, 32 AD, was the day that fulfilled all of the prophecies from Daniel chapter 9, considering the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2. And I know there was 173,880 days later, remember a Jewish calendar, 
where Jesus had to ride into Jerusalem and be proclaimed publicly as the Christ for the first time. That was what we call the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. April 6th, our calendar now, 32 AD. Jesus died later that week. So that's when he died. Now, a lot of the differences in the timelines are from liberal religious scholars who are trying to, who, who are trying to discredit the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord. So there's all kinds of resources available out there. Let me suggest uh, a couple of others. Um, one is, uh, I mentioned this last week, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? And then there's one that I also recommend often. It's called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict uh, by Josh McDowell, which is a very, very difficult read. It's very, very scholarly. Um, but it, it will break these things down and give you some direction. So um, scholars have different motives. If your motive is to prove that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, then you're going to look at it with a view that says, okay, let's let's make sure Jesus really fulfilled the prophecy. But if your timelines are intended to discredit the literal reading of the scriptures, then you're going to have a perspective. No, it didn't happen this, it didn't happen then. So, Alan, I hope that answers your question. It's a very, very important study, and um, there's lots of resources, but I think the most widely accepted is Sir Robert Anderson, um, the coming prince. Maybe it's the coming king, but no, I think it's the coming prince. But but you'll find out if you, if you Google it. So thank you, Alan. Here is a question from Stacy from Converse. It's often discussed how the people of Israel missed Jesus' connections to the Messianic prophecies. Why do you think they missed this even to this day? And do you think Mary and Joseph would have recognized these prophecies and how they connected to their own son. Um, let, let me get through the first part of your question, Stacy, quickly, because I think these are great questions. Um, they missed Jesus' connection to the Messianic prophecies because they didn't want to, to see it. They couldn't miss. If they would have looked with an open heart, they couldn't have missed that Jesus was who he said he was. Uh, and that's why Jesus said to the to, to the religious leaders, these are the prophecies. You, you say you believe in the law and the prophets, but those are the prophets, the law and the prophets point to me. But see, they'd already made their mind up. Why? Because they didn't like what Jesus was teaching. They wanted the Messiah to do their bidding. They wanted the Messiah to free them from Roman oppression. And Jesus made it clear that I didn't come to deal with your enemy, Rome. I came to deal with your enemy, sin. Give an example. You turned my father's house instead of the house of prayer. You turned it into a den of thieves. Well, they were getting rich off of that thievery. They didn't want somebody coming in and upsetting the apple cart. So they refused. Uh, Nicodemus, Joseph Arimathea became secret disciples because they knew what was true, but the others, they didn't want to know. And the truth of the matter is, is their eyes were closed. You know, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, he says, to the day he was writing, it is also true to today that there's a veil covering their hearts, the Jewish heart. And that veil is only removed when somebody turns to Christ. And by the way, this is a wonderful way to pray for Jews. Just pray. And I, I have dear friends that I pray for daily. And, and here's my prayer, Lord, may they just turn just a little bit to you and then you can rip that veil away, and then they can see what's ever before them. I was listening last week to a Christian, not a Christian, I'm sorry, a conservative commentator on YouTube. Somebody uh, wanted me to listen to something, and um, um, it was um, a, a believer trying to convince him of Jesus Christ. And he just didn't want to listen. He kept avoiding the questions, and he, he wouldn't answer the questions. Well, well, rabbis say this, and rabbis say that. Well, we as Jews believe this. And he never once opened his heart. And I, all I could do is pray, Lord, may he just turn just a little bit to Jesus. You could rip the veil. And then he would see what they miss. So that's why they missed the connections to, to the Messianic prophecies. They didn't want to know. 
And whether you're Jew or Gentile, the truth is, if you don't want to know what's true, you're not going to find out what's true. It's that simple. It's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knocks on the door of our heart, but we keep shutting the door, and we're the ones in control. The second question, I think, is even more um, um, intriguing, Stacy. Just why do you think they miss? I'm sorry. Do you think that Mary and Joseph would have recognized these prophecies and how they connected to their own son? They wouldn't have had to recognize the prophecies at least at the beginning because Gabriel visited both of them. So I mean, they 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 got the message direct from heaven. A messenger from from heaven, the archangel Gabriel, um, delivered the word of God to them in person. And then, of course, that is exactly what happened. Now. Later, and this is really, really difficult for us to understand, later, now Joseph is evidently dead by this time, but we know that Mary had difficulties. Nothing went the way she thought they would go. And with her other siblings, or Jesus' other siblings, her other children, uh, the family, we're told in the Gospel of Luke, thought that Jesus was crazy, out of his mind. And so they went to take control of him. And so, yeah, they, they they recognize the prophecies, but like all of us, they found it hard to believe them with the evidence that was ever before their eyes and the circumstances. You know, Jesus was the most wanted man in Jerusalem. He was beloved by few, hated by most. And you can imagine how difficult that would be for a mom. I mean, we can go all the way back to Mary's soul being pierced. I mean, she knew all these things, but circumstances sometimes cause us to miss the point. And certainly that was the case with Mary. Yeah, she knew who Jesus was. But I think doubt was an, a, a powerful enemy for Mary and certainly for his brothers, Jesus' brothers and sisters as well. But yeah, they wouldn't have had to have their foundation in the prophecies. Their foundation was Gabriel's visit and then Mary having the child. Later, when they would have those doubts and they would waver in their faith, then those prophecies would be something to strengthen them. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's the question I referred to earlier about the Gospels. It's from Chris. He says, what are the dates the four Gospels were written? Uh, I just mentioned to Alan, um, uh, Chris, that the dates are widely, widely um, disputed by scholars. And it depends on what they're trying to prove. Uh, those who date the Gospels late, um, uh, later than 70 AD, um, they're, they have an agenda. Their agenda is to demonstrate that Jesus really wasn't Christ, that the Gospels weren't written by eyewitness accounts. The later they can place the Gospel dates, then the, 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 the least credibility that those Gospel accounts will have. Now, here's the dates. Now, nobody knows the exact dates. Um, we're almost certain that Mark was the first gospel written, and that date goes back to maybe as early as 55 A.D. And remember, Jesus died in 32 A.D., so that's not very many years in the future. That's 33 years. And um, Mark's gospel, which is Peter's account, uh, is an eyewitness account, and there's no doubt about it. Um most scholars believe that the Gospel of Matthew is next. Now, Matthew's was the most Jewish of all the Gospels. We know beyond any doubt that it was written before 70 A.D. because the, the Jewish temple was destroyed completely in 70 A.D. Jesus prophesied it. Certainly, Matthew would have made reference. The same thing is true with Luke. Although not a Jew, Luke... Um, you know, he, he writes to uh, who I believe is his former owner. I think Luke was clearly a slave, though a physician, he was a slave. Um, in the book of Acts, written by Luke, 
there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. That would have been an important deal, a big, big deal. That close to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it simply isn't mentioned. So um, between 55, probably the Gospel of Mark, maybe as long as 63 or 64 A.D., those are the dates of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John was a gospel that was written later than all of the others and probably not written until uh, sometime around 90 A.D., John would have written it as a very old man. It's the last of the Gospels, and it's just a completely independent work. So, uh, Chris, that's as close as we can go, but here's what we can do, what what I can tell you for sure. Uh, The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were all written before the destruction of the temple by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. And by the way, we also have... Uh, the certainty of the dates, the, the date range, all of the epistles were written um, prior to 70 AD because none of them mentions the destruction of the temple. And that would have been a monumental event. A mon- it would have been, un- nobody could have missed it. And so it would have been included. So, for example, the letter to the Hebrews, we know that the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. So the date thus is before 70 AD. Hope that helps, Chris. Thank you very, very much. Boy, time's going by. We've got five minutes left. Um, here is a question. Oh, we've got a phone call, so we'll do that in first. We've got Elena on line one from San Antonio. Elena, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, thank you, Pastor. Pastor, you, I'm a former Catholic, and... I have a great deal of respect for uh, Protestants, uh, the Protestant revolt, because it took must take an enormous amount of courage for Martin Luther to stand up to an, a powerful Rome that would cut down a bishop in a heartbeat if they didn't mm-hmm. comply. Um, so I have great respect for that. But I wonder, does anyone ever question that they may have separated in several ways from several doctrines, but they carried quite a few of the Roman Catholic doctrines with them as if they were the uh, gospel. And, um, I mean, does anyone ever question, well, okay, we got rid of some of the Catholic doctrines, but we, we went ahead and grabbed some others. I don't mean to make it just sound like that, but yeah. we, we took some others. But does anyone ever question that or... Yeah, you know it's interesting, uh, Elena. The the, um, the the Martin Luther never intended to leave the Catholic Church. Um, he wanted to reform it in the sense that he he'd become personally so convinced of this doctor doctrine of justification by faith alone um, that that he wanted when he nailed his thesis on the the doors in Wittenberg. Um, he, he simply wanted the Catholic Church to wake up and see this is what justification is all about. So he never intended to leave the Catholic Church. He was actually booted out of the Catholic Church. And uh, you're right, it took a lot of courage. At the same time, he didn't go far enough. He wanted to keep, it was his, his always intention to keep Catholic doctrine because he didn't disagree with it. It was just that one essential, or at least he considered an essential, and I agree with him, the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And um, that was, um, I mean, that basically cost them everything. So keep in mind, as we, we call it the Protestant Reformation, but it was really more of a revamping or remodeling. And uh, from my perspective, the, the weakness is that they would have brought so much bad, unhealthy Catholic doctrine with them. And we still see uh, the remnants of that. We still see uh, some of these Protestant denominations uh, who've never, ever really been grounded. Um, yeah, I believe what Martin Luther said, but, but what about all this Catholic stuff? And uh, we, we watch so many of, of our deep truths of the faith turned into religious exercises. So um, I agree with you completely, Elena. It's, um, um, he kept it, and, and um, he would have been best to start all over. Remember, he lived in a time um, 
16th century when uh, that wasn't so easy. The Catholic Church was dominant in terms of of uh, the effect on, on religion. Good question. Okay, we got just a couple of minutes. Here's one I can do very quickly from Brian. He says, what do you think is going to happen to the church if the Democrats win the election? Um, Brian, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, I'm not saying the Democrats are from hell, but I'm just saying the church is going to be fine. In these last days, the church is going to be fine. I think we're going to find out that not everybody who thinks they're a part of the church really is. I think we're going to see the church shaken out. But the truth is, Jesus is the one who's in control. And if the Democrats win the election, for real Christians to be shaken by this, now you can have your preferences, but for real Christians to be shaken by this is something that they really, really desperately need to take before the Lord because that is just faith going out the door. And I I listen to people who are all the time talking about, well, if the Democrats win, we're going to do this. Or, um, I believe, Brian, we're in the last days and our world is in trouble. Things are getting worse, whether... A Republican wins or the Democrats win. That's just the way it's always been. But God is in control and nothing, no one can thwart his will. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Reminder, ladies, uh, Raina Wilson will be uh, sharing your heart tonight at 7 o'clock on AM 630. I'm sorry, at CalRSA.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.